We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Today, we are very fortunate to have Ruth Mojica to talk to us about the best kept secret. And there's a whole lot about Ruth that she probably won't share with you, but I know she's a former educator. Um, Ruth has one of our affiliate leaders in our Cleveland County uh, affiliate. She, since 2015, has been facilitating a family support group. Um, and teaching family to family, NAMI smarts, and numerous other things. Uh, she's been known to do book studies for us. She is an extremely well-read person, a great resource in that area. Also, she has a 47-year-old daughter who has been living with schizophrenia or maybe schizoaffective disorder for about the last 27 years. So she's got a lot of experience to share with us and hopefully will share with us the joys and the benefit of being part of a family support group. So Ruth, with that, I'm going to let you introduce yourself in any other way that you would like to and just let you begin. Okay. Um, Good afternoon. I'm going to take care of some stuff first. Um, I'm going to have a word about language now. I'll be using uh, mental illness, uh, mental health disorder, brain disorder and brain illness interchangeably. When I refer to the loved one, it means the person who has a mental illness and then I will refer to someone else as a family member, which could just be a friend. The gold standard in medical treatment is when a patient is newly diagnosed with a chronic serious condition like diabetes. He is uh, assigned a support group that is composed of his peers. In other words, everyone in this support group has been recently diagnosed with diabetes. His family members are assigned to a different support group. They're a different set of peers, and they're assigned to a support group just for family members or caregivers. Now, so they're both referred to as peers within their support group, but when you hear that, know that there are different sets of peers. In each support group, the peers are kind of traveling the same bus, but they might be getting off at different stops. Um, Usually, even, even in the medical field, they aren't necessarily in the same group. If a doc, if they had a support group with a doctor and a therapist and a nutrition, they're trying to convey a lot of medical information. Uh, so they might be together, but then they'll also be separate because the role of the person with the condition and the role of the family member sometimes need to be discussed in privacy from the other person. So uh, NAMI understands this. We're gonna look at two basic support groups that NAMI has. 
uh, we're going to look at their similarities, then we'll look at what research shows about what doesn't work and how bias plays a role. And then we'll describe the needs of the majority of people that come to support groups like NAMIs. And then we'll have some real life examples and we'll finish up on why some support groups work. Um, NAMI has two basic support groups. One is called the NAMI Connection. The other one is called the Family Support Group. Now I'm most familiar with the Family Support Group. NAMI Connections is for those who are in recovery from mental illness. Uh, the Family Support Group uh, is using the word family with a NAMI definition. It can be a spouse or an ex-spouse. It can be a parent or a step-parent. It can be a grandparent. It can be a friend. It could be a cousin. It could be a friend of the loved one or a friend of the family member. It can be a neighbor. And we have had all of those attend support groups and family to family. Um, so you, you can think of family support group as a support group for anyone who wants to be a better advocate and help an adult that has a mental illness. Uh, NAMI's two support groups, the NAMI Connection and Family to Family, they have some similarities. For instance, they have both have trained NAMI facilitators. They have similar guidelines and principles. Confidentiality is stressed. It's actually a group guideline, number three. Uh, there's no charge to participate. At the meetings, it's the participants who share through their lived experience information and resources. But the most important thing about support groups in this case is everyone is a peer. Even the facilitators are peers. No one else can attend. Years ago, and Paul, I don't know if you knew this, I attended a NAMI support group with my husband, and it was organized by mental health professionals. They had a monthly topic, a theme, they brought in great speakers, and they did have family members attend, but it just didn't click with my husband and I, and we stopped attending, and we didn't attend another support group for maybe 20 years. And I didn't realize at the time, but I think it was because it wasn't peer-led. Now, I understand that. I think it was great that they had it, that these mental health professionals understood that when mental illness hits a family, those families usually can't think of adding another thing to their plate. So they knew about NAMI's work. They stepped up and tried to fill that gap. but. They might be great at group therapy, but family support group really needs to be peer-led as well as the connections recovery group. So um, no matter how well-intentioned, it didn't click for us. Uh, Tolstoy said, happy families are all alike. Unhappy families, and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. People that come to these support groups really do feel like they are alone in a unique situation. They feel isolated and they are grieving the loss of someone 
they loved, they uh, or they are grieving the person they thought they would be. There's no ritual for that grief. They don't know how to take that grief and work with it. When I was trained in family to family, my trainer said, and at that time it was normal to have a family support group once a month or twice a month. And he had said, if they need more than that, and you'll know if they need more than that, then that's therapy. COVID, I think, changed that. The connection support group does meet every week because it's part of their recovery. So here we have people that are suffering from an ambiguous loss. The mind is not there, but the body is. Or if it's the person with the condition, they're there, but they don't really, they know they're not capable of the same stuff. And they're torn between the hope that they, they will get that back and the fear that they may, may not. That's an ambiguous loss. And it requires a certain kind of support group. Um, these people are also might be suffering from trauma and PTSD. So why should someone attend a support group? Maybe it would be better to spend the money and the time on a therapist or maybe an attorney. Uh, what makes support group worth the time and effort? And why are some support groups successful and some falter? Well, we're going to look at what works. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, what doesn't work? Uh, this has been reported by actual participants. Before you see this, I want to tell you that if you see something you did, remember, you can't know what no one told you. This is what actual participants said does not work. The person told them everything will be okay. The person avoided me or changed the subject. The person tried to fix it. The person talked about her own experience. The person belittled my feelings, meaning, well, it's not as bad as you think. So-and-so has this happen to them. The person didn't allow me to cry or be sad. The person analyzed the situation. The person pushed his own spiritual beliefs. Thanks, Paula. We're going to look at three of these right away. Number one, changing the subject. Everyone wants to distract from pain, including doctors. Now, doctors are being taught that um, healing happens when you go through it and you are with it. Um, denial and distraction don't work in the long run. Number two, they would not allow me to be sad or cry is similar to wanting to change the subject. People are uncomfortable with that kind of grief and we aren't taught the tools to deal with it. Um, and analyzing the situation, <laughs> going back to the medical field, Answering a feeling with a fact doesn't work for anyone, including doctors. Hence, med schools are now teaching classes on what they call deep listening or the compassionate connection. No matter which support group you're in, two things are read at the beginning. One is the guidelines and one is principles of support. Number one, we will see the person 
the individual first and not the illness, okay? I think, it, I think that would be appropriate because they're in grief and you know that person is in grief in front of you. So you wanna deal with that. How about number two, not allowing them to be sad or cry. Um, that's similar to wanting to change the uh, subject, but I think number four also, better coping skills. Um, number seven, we won't judge anyone's pain as less than our own. Uh, how about number three? They tried to fix it for them. I know some parents really wanna fix things. Kid gets in trouble in school, they're gonna fix it. Kid is having trouble with the sports team. They're gonna put them on a training program. I think for family members, as well as loved ones, number 10, that is a hard one, but we have to accept that we cannot solve all problems. I know when I facilitate support group, I have my regulars and then I have a new person. And about half the time, the new person is in crisis. They come in and you have a two minute check-in where you tell how you're doing right now. And they can't stop talking or crying. And it's like everyone in the group looks and knows that you just need to let them talk. Just let them talk and be accepted so that we can share with them. But they, this is the first time they're really saying what's on their mind. So, um, and because of that, I think number seven, you won't judge anyone's pain as less than our own is big. So you just saw the principles of support. Uh, we go around the room, we read them, and that way everybody knows what they are and is reminded. Uh, the group guidelines, which is where you'll see the thing on confidentiality is also shared. But take a look at number four, be respectful. Also be mindful of others, no monopolizing or crosstalk. Um, Number six, keep it in the here and now. Obviously, when they come in and they're so upset, or maybe they didn't know they were so upset, but it's the first time they're telling their story and they're being accepted and everything they say is being accepted, they almost can't stop. That's a time where we allow them to have the stage. But being respectful of other people's religions or cultures or or even how they handle the problem. I don't think any parent, uh, we get so many mis mixed messages as parents, um, teach them responsibility. Well, that's a little hard if they can't make good decisions. So um, that big res be respectful, I think covers a lot. Another famous quote is, we all see life not as it is, but as we are. Our biases develop over a lifetime and they help us to make decisions and they help us to see the world, but they can also hamper us. Now, a lot of the people that come to our support groups have been shamed for having the condition 
or have been shamed because people think they caused the condition. That's a bias. Now, you may think that you don't have a bias, but it's just part of growing up human. There's a reason why we develop them. And I'm, I can share so many experiments, but I'm gonna share one, a recent one. Uh, these um, radiologists, specialists, highly trained people and experienced were told to look for these small cancer nodules on these CT scans. And so they were looking for it. Now on the CT scan was a, an image of a gorilla that was 48 times the size of the nodules they were looking for. Absolutely none of them saw it. This is an example of bias. Um, you see, very often we see what we expect to see. Medical professionals do it, we do it. It's a form of um, protection. Who's in our group, who's not in our group? Who's a stranger, who's dangerous? Our biases help us sometimes, but they also hinder us. But because we deal with people that have a mental illness, we need to be very sensitive to that so that we can confront it when we see it. Um, in support group, when it says we see the individual first and not the illness, we separate that out. In connections, they're doing it with people that have the mental health condition. In family, we know that the family member can be difficult, but we also know that there was a time before that took over and that that family member remembers that person. In NAMI support groups, we don't provide answers. We connect to the person. We do share lived experience. What did we find helpful or not helpful? But we're not giving you an answer or a cure. Neil Gaiman said, pain shared is not pain doubled, but pain halved. I think that is like a perfect explanation about why we should tell our stories. In support group, we have a two minute section where we kind of explain what we're doing there. And uh, we try to keep it here and now, because like I said, my journey has been about 20 years. Uh, so it's really important for me to keep it in the here and now. But as I tell my story every month, I can do one of two things. I can say the same old thing over and over again, or I can start developing my story. Now, what's the difference? Um, this is the difference. If you tell your story the same way, emotionally, you're in that situation, you're not learning from it, but you're reacting to that story. It can be re -traumat uh, it can be uh, traumatizing to you again, and it's not productive. It might be informative to the group if they didn't know you. But if you develop your story, if you say after three months of saying it one way, so three times saying it one way, you're going to change it another way. 
you're developing a story. If you journal, if you tell your story in written form, you should be seeing that you're developing that story. And that's important because when you verbalize these unconscious thoughts or you put them down in writing so that it flows, you're gonna change the kind of pronouns you use. You're gonna be using more connective language. If you're telling that same story, that's the story when you felt isolated. That's the story that gave you trauma. But as you write that story or tell it to other people, I remember when I did this, I could not find the beginning and I didn't have an end. It's still going on. It was very difficult for me to do that. But then I realized, oh, that can be traumatizing to my group too. So I started developing my story. Then I started keeping a log, which you could think of as a journal. And I noticed a change because it went from she did this, I did this, to I understand now, I try to do this. Uh, this person helped in this way. So research has shown that if you're keeping a written record or you tell it orally, that keeping that same story is not showing growth. If you're developing your story, you're moving into another phase of recovery. And that's where you want your group to be. So if you go to a support group and you realize everyone's telling the same story in the same way all the time, then that's probably not the support group for you. You want a story where they can tell the same facts, but they've moved on. It's not re-traumatizing to them. So here's the first real life story. I had been facilitating support groups for a while and I had um, a woman come in, it was a grandmother. She was raising her granddaughter who was basically had been sent on the train to her because the mother couldn't handle her. And right away, she knew her granddaughter was different. And the girl rapidly became unstable. And we were sitting around and I had mentioned that my daughter was in residential care at that time. And she thought, well, that might be fine for her, but that's not me. I'd never do that to my kin. But she didn't say that. And she came to support group fairly regularly for several years. And she went and she took family to family. And the funny thing was, she was wonderful in family family. She just threw herself into it. But I still didn't hear this story. Anyway, the granddaughter got so unstable that pretty much they were on first name basis with all the CIT in that neighborhood. Uh, the granddaughter was medically compliant. The grandmother handled the meds. 
I was in despair because I could see what was coming down the road. And one day events happened and the grandmother realized she could not shelter the granddaughter anymore. She was going to have to find residential care, which I helped her with. And uh, she found a place that she, she was comfortable with and the granddaughter went. Within two weeks of being in residential care, the granddaughter showed signs of improvement. The first signs of stability that I was aware of in years, which was which really was a great relief to the grandmother. And it wasn't until a few months down the road that the grandmother told me this story. And I said, oh, my gosh, I really need you to come to support group, even though you don't need it now. I need that story said because there's got to be other people that are thinking the same thing. And because we're all female here, hey, you know, we spend a lot of time at night thinking, what if? Not just because we might have a mentally ill loved one, but, but because that's our nature. We're always thinking, what if this? What if I serve turkey and I don't serve ham? You know, that that's our life. Other, You have to be aware of the what ifs and you have to be acclimated to the range of options. So this story, the fact that the grandmother didn't need support group anymore, but I needed her in there for someone else. Uh, the next story comes from a group therapy session, and it is in the NAMI magazine for fall 2020, The Advocate. Now, it's not necessarily from a support group. It's from group therapy. However, I have been to NAMI Connection support group twice, and I can tell you this just as easily could have happened there. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's never been much of a challenge to figure out everybody's story in the places I've been institutionalized. There's simply a lot of chatter, and it's usually a simple thing to piece together. I, Jay was different, though. He never spoke to anyone. At first, I thought he was angry at being put there with the rest of us crazies. It was a group therapy session where I finally realized he was fearful, not of us, but of his own feelings. The therapist tried talking about suicidal ideation and ways to work out of those thought patterns was clearly taken aback. So the therapist was taken aback. When Jay said that he couldn't even hear what she was saying because all he could think about at the moment was suicide. The therapist responded with how hard it is to be a teen and how these thoughts can take root while dealing with everyday stresses of teenage life. Jay's facial expression changed to one of confusion. Her words weren't connecting to his experiences at all. That's when I chimed in. When I was a teenager, I couldn't stop thinking of killing myself either. It would be a few years before I found out about my bipolar disorder. So those times where my brain would get all squirrely were scary as hell, especially when they came out of nowhere while I was having an otherwise all right day. Jay's eyes widened and he said, that's it exactly. And then he went on to talk about how 
about his struggles and it was a breakthrough. That happens when someone feels safe to tell their story. And it happened in that case because that girl shared her story. And that's what happens in NAMI Connections. Similar things happen in the family support group. She's still working with Jay. And I found this interesting. Um, the fact that his ideations were suddenly all-consuming was different from anything I had experienced or heard from. So I asked him, what happened at the time things were their usual and then they weren't? As it turned out, Jay had been given a medication that caused the side effects in his teens. He didn't really believe it at first until I briefly shared how, again, as a teen, it turned out that a lot of my hallucinations and other psychotic symptoms were the result of getting prescribed meds that research eventually showed were risky to give to people like me. So Jay went on to talk to his doctor and that stopped his hallucinations. I, I just thought that was a great story. This is from a book called um, What to Do When Someone You Love is Depressed. And the fellow's talking about the role of a confidant or somebody at support group or a therapist. And your role in these moments is to be a beacon of light, flashing the proximity of the shore without comment. The beacon does not does no harm. It simply says, I'm here, I'm listening offering a semblance of a connection and showing a way towards safety. So in NAMI support groups, we don't provide answers, but we connect to the person. We need to hear and understand how that person perceives their situation. Now, research has shown that continually writing or talking about emotionally upsetting experiences has physiological benefits. Uh, keeping them repressed has consequences. So the benefits could be an enhanced immune system, less doctor visits, uh, improved physical health over time. Holding in those negative emotions or repressing them can trigger dysregulation, the release of the stress level uh, hormone cortisol, which, by the way, deals uh, is influ is um, involved with weight gain and immune suppression. So each time you tell your story and you develop your story, you are getting some of those benefits. But here's the kicker. So for years they said journal writing is good, blah blah blah. Well, the recent research has shown that if you write in a journal to get those benefits. It needs to be read. So what happens in support group? You tell your story, you develop your story, and you have, it's like being read, but it's your audience. It's the other members in the support group who are listening to your story. And the nice thing about telling it in a support group is these people have the courage and the willingness to be present with you and your story. And when support groups are cited as successful, uh, 
it's because of this. It's the sharing of the stories. And you can't have stories without having participants. Um, so I want to stop here a moment and talk about healing. Because the NAMI Connections group is all about recovery and healing. The family support group we think of as more moving on, but it's about healing from grief. So um, there are two kinds of treatment. There's a linear treatment, which is a pathological process. And then there's circular he healing. So a linear treatment is when you go to the doctor because you're not feeling well and he gives you, he tests you for strep, you have strep, he gives you a pill, you take it, you get better. There's hardly a dialogue in it. It's pathological because it focuses on disease. It cures a symptom and maybe the ailment. The idea is to return you to your old state before you had strep. It's disease-based. It's a biomedical model, hierarchical mo model. In other words, the doctor's the boss and you're not. And it's passive. The only thing you do is take a pill. Now, with circular healing, it's a natural process. Um, it helps both the person who's dealing with the, the one who has the problem, as well as the one who has the problem. It's about achieving a new state or a new normal. It's health-based in the sense that it's taking the whole person and it's a health model. It's collaborative. You have to be able to trust the person you're talking to and they in talking back to you can help you gain insight. It's a very active model. Um, you can see how both the NAMI connection group and a good family support group can do that. So we have already seen that does not work. Participants in support groups listed, listed what did help people who would just listen to their story, cooked me some food. The expression is mental illness is not a casserole disease. Shared in and accepted my emotions, sat with me, gave me a hug, recognized my needs and didn't ignore me or avoid me, was patient with me and can't see that bottom one, can you? Oh, it was just there for me. So um, I was going to flash up the guidelines, but you can tell how the principles of support as well as the guidelines do this. If you've read Javier Amador's I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help, <laughs> When I was putting this together, I was thinking, oh my God, that's, that's exactly what he's talking about. We just want someone to listen. We don't want to be judged. We don't want to be told what we did wrong. I don't even want to be told what I did right. I just want to share my story. 
my friends have cooked me food because when I bring this up <laughs> support group, someone always does that or someone brings snacks the next time. The sharing in it and accepting my emotions. I'm going to go to a story about the grandmother again. Okay. Well, she was in our family to family class and we had talked about communication. And that following week, her granddaughter was uh, very scared in her room. She thought there were black spiders coming in under the door, over the door, through the window and the vents. And the grandmother went in and tried to use some of the communication techniques that we talked about. And this is with shared in and accepted my emotions. She knew her granddaughter was scared. She said, it must be very, it must be terrifying for you. And then she said, how can I help you? And the grand, she said, do you want me to call your doctor? No. So her granddaughter couldn't quite express right away how she could help, but she didn't want her grandmother to leave. So her grandmother said, do you want me to sit with you? Her granddaughter was sitting on the floor and the granddaughter said, yes. And the grandmother said, can I hug you? And the granddaughter said, yes. And she was there for a few hours and then it was over with. They didn't have to call the doctor. They didn't have to take emergency meds. Uh, I think trust was built up during that time, but the grandmother shared in and accepted her emotions. And if you think back on getting a diagnosis or your loved one getting the diagnosis, isn't that what you want? Sat with me. Uh, well, I wish I had copied the Winnie the Pooh cartoon where uh, Pooh just sits with Eeyore because Eeyore is having a bad day. Give me a hug. That happens a lot in support group. As a matter of fact, if it doesn't happen, then I think you need to cultivate that because people might feel, especially after COVID, they might feel like, you know, we can't touch someone, but that is an important thing. Recognize my needs, didn't ignore me and or avoid me. So we don't have training in what to do when people are grieving and we don't understand that we don't know their situation. But sometimes if you just sit there and listen, that's what they need. Was patient with me. Well, we have one principle that says, empathize with each other's situation. All the time when people are in family to family, they go, ah, you know, I just did everything wrong. I'm so frustrated. Well, you can't know everything and you can't know something that nobody hasn't taught you or told you. In support group, everyone is understanding of that. And yes, in support group, we are there for them. In support group, we don't provide answers because people do come thinking we have the cure, but we connect to the person. We need to hear and understand how the person perceives the situation and what they believe they could do to change its course. We're never going to push someone into doing something that we think they ought to do. So 
when this grandmother came in and her daughter, her granddaughter was so unstable, it, I had it in my mind to say residential care now, but I didn't. You, you don't push someone into these things. They have to come to it. You can prevent, you can present the options. You can tell them what you did. And for everything that you did that worked, there might be somebody in the support group where it didn't work. And that's okay. Each person has to navigate their own path and be comfortable with it. Um, so for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to reference a couple of things that I used. One was the Advocate Magazine for Fall 2020. And all the research I cited about support groups came from this book called The Compassionate Connection, The Healing Power of Empathy and Mindful Listening. It's written by a doctor who actually teaches the course now. Uh, it's David Rankel is the name. So I'm gonna back up here and say, people come to support group regularly for different reasons. And if you go to a support group that's established, listen to the stories and see if they're the same stories all the time. See how they respond to people who come in crying. See how they respond to someone who says, Something like, I just kept telling him to pull himself up by his bootstraps. And you can tell by their reactions if that's a good fit for you or not. Um, I think when I think back to that very first uh, support group that was run by mental health professionals, I think I heard a lot of that talk. Um, but I didn't hear any counter talk. And in a support group, someone would say to the, to the person who said, I just kept on telling him to pull himself up by his bootstraps. Somebody would say, yes, because that's what we're taught as parents. Or, you know, there'd be some commiseration. There'd be some acknowledgement that we'd all make mistakes. So good support groups are gonna support each other and they're gonna reach out for each other. They're going to let you cry. They're going to let someone else cry. Uh, there might be a hugger. So those are the things that you look for and NAMI trains you for. Um, the training, the training's more like a bus route map. It teaches you where the bus stops are. It teaches you how to drive your bus but it doesn't necessarily teach you how, that's experience. Um, when I started, of course I was uncomfortable with people crying hysterically, but you know what? My support group knew exactly what to do. And I think that's the other thing. The facilitator can push them back on track, but it's the group wisdom that makes a support group work. So in conclusion, what I wanna say is, does anybody know what the most important thing is in a support group, the best kept secret? It's gonna be you. 
not as a facilitator, but as a participant. My job is easy. I need my group there. For one thing, we're supposed to use lived experience. I have a lot of lived experience with the schizophrenic spectrum. I know nothing about anxiety, depression, borderline personality, or bipolar. That's not true. I can lie. I mean, I can, you know, they'll look at me to give an answer, but I'll say someone who I know that's a regular who has to deal with bipolar, I'll say, what would you tell this person? Because it means more if it comes from someone who has direct experience. So that is all I have. I don't know what you were expecting, but I hope you got something out of it. Thank you, Ruth. That, that was wonderful. And I do believe that the family support groups uh, are the best kept secret because they offer such tremendous support for others. And not only do people come to get something, but you're right. Hopefully they will come to give back as well, because we all have something to offer back from our own wisdom and experiences. So thank you. I don't know if I mentioned that um, they, they have this research on people who do service. So when you facilitate a support group, it's different than volunteering. Uh, you are volunteering, but you're in service because you can sit and listen. You can sit and wait. You're not judgmental. There are actually health benefits to that. Um, they have done research on volunteers. And so they first evaluated the volunteers. Now, this wasn't on sport uh, facilitators of support group. This is just like volunteers and soup kitchens and working with homeless. And so they discovered that there seemed to be a group of people whose lives were enriched when they did this work. And there was a group of people who didn't have any of these benefits. And so they started looking into it and they found out if you go through the motions, but you're judgmental or you're cynical, you don't get the benefits. But if you go to listen to someone's story, to get them to trust you to open up, you have to open up. And it's hard to open up and be judgmental. It's hard to open up and uh, convince them that you're gonna stay with them. And uh, when you do that, you do feel better. There's a, a period when I started support group that it was just like, don't, I'd come home and I'd say, don't talk to me. Because you'd hear sometimes it'd be a new person with just an awful story and you don't know if you help them. Uh, but now, especially after this book, I know what I'm looking for in my group and I kind of move them along. I kept the book three months. Thank you, Ruth. Again, I'm telling you, I told Ruth, we can just let you start talking. You read so much and know so much research and have so much knowledge that every time you start talking, you think of something else. It's a real gem to share. And I really appreciate that about you. Okay. So, and, and thank you, Ruth, for taking the time to be with us today when you have grandchildren with you in your home from France <laughs> that hasn't been here in a very long time. So we appreciate you um, sharing your life and your wisdom with us today. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.